Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Eating Crow with Pete Durand. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Eating Crow podcast. I have Brooks Bell on the program. Hi, Brooks. Great to be here with you. Thank you. So uh, Brooks is a local celebrity in the Raleigh area, and I have finally had the pleasure of meeting Brooks and following her company. And we're going to drill into Brooks's story, which is well beyond her being a very successful business person and entrepreneur, but more into your personal platforms and the things you're passionate about. So thanks for being with us. So when you wake up today in 2022, what's the first mission? What's your passion? What are you focused on? What do you do each day? My mission has been absolutely transformed in the last few years, Mm -hmm. and my life is so much better for it. When I wake up today, what I've been thinking about is to prevent colon cancer in people, particularly young people and underprivileged people, and educating them that colon cancer is a big deal, that it's rising in young people. It's something we should be aware of. And and it's one of the few things that we can actually take action on and prevent it in ourselves. And that's something that I did not know a few years ago. I wish someone had told me. So when you say young people, how young? Really? Probably people in their 30s and 40s. I'm uh, 41 now, and uh, I got colon cancer when I was 38. Historically, colon cancer screening has started at age 50. Yeah. And I think even people in their 50s you know, and 60s still feel very young. But in my mind, it's 30s and 40s uh, are just sort of, we're not really thinking about cancer yet when we're that age, but it's starting to happen in an increasing amount just because of our lifestyle, the environment, the toxicity around us. And it's something that we just got to start to like think about and um, take action on. Well, on behalf of everyone in their 50s, I'm glad you said we're still young. Yes, absolutely. I mean, thinking about like less than a decade of away from being 50 myself. So now, obviously, when you're 38 years old, you're running a business, it's very successful. You've got a family, you're kind of at the peak of everything. And then you get this diagnosis, which is just a punch in the stomach. What did you do the next day? I know how you're, you're a planner, you're a doer. So how did you tackle this? What was your initial reaction? I had been experiencing blood in my stool for uh, maybe six or eight weeks leading up to my diagnosis. And I had already taken some action to try to figure out what was going on. I had talked to three different doctors and finally got access to a colonoscopy. When I woke up from that colonoscopy, they had found a tumor, which was the cause of the bleeding. And, uh, and I went home that day. I was just like, holy crap. I mean, my life has changed. My life will forever be different from this moment forward. And my first thought was not really like my life is over. It's more that it has just changed. And now I need to prepare for how am I going to project manage my way through this? How am I going to, how do I learn as much as possible? How do I just get in front of this and take all the skills that I have built in dealing with adversity and building my company and now apply it to this new major challenge? 
I didn't really allow myself to feel really bad for myself or feel, you know, I was trying to be very strong going through it. And I think it, it did carry me through what it's the strength that I needed at that moment. So interesting enough, let, let's step back and talk about a couple of things you mentioned. I think that are important to consider, right? So number one, you've been feeling symptoms for six to eight weeks. Mm-hmm. You mentioned you talked to three or four doctors before you finally got a colonoscopy. Yeah. Was that because you were so young? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the doctors are well-meaning, good people, and they see so many patients all the time. And so over time, they see patterns. And so they're not used to seeing young people with presenting these symptoms. And when it comes to colon cancer, blood in your stool, it can also be a very benign condition like like hemorrhoids. And so doctors just go straight to the more common condition. And, and I think they also really don't want to stress people out, you know, so they don't want to think that they're looking down a cancer patient and they don't want to use the C word on anybody unless they're really sure it's a problem. So I think they're just really, they really avoid it. And I get that. I get why, but I think it can cause what happened to me where I was essentially dismissed. I think the reason I was so kind of proactive and not really accepting the diagnosis that I think everyone is hoping is true. I had a a stroke early on when I was 24 and again, had a very similar experience where I got to the hospital, told them I was having a stroke and they're like, "Mm, I doubt that you're 24 and 24 don't have strokes. So I waited around in the ER for hours before I was able to get an MRI to fully diagnosis and, um, and so I think I learned my lesson that like, you just really have to advocate for yourself when you know your body, you know, something's going on that the doctor, you know, is hesitant to kind of go there with you. A couple of things that are interesting there. Most of us don't think or don't want to assume that the worst case scenario is happening, particularly when you're 38 years old, right? I mean, at 48, 50, I started getting all the notes from my doctors and, you know, it's time for your colonoscopy, get, get that done. But when you come out of that exam and they found a tumor, and the reason I asked the question is I know you jumped into this with, you, you went full bore. So describe what you changed in your life to allow you to dig into this. Well, the first thing I did was I stepped down from running my company. That was a massive, like dramatic change. I mean, the day after my diagnosis, I came into the office and I talked with my assistant and my president and told them what happened. And then I was stepping down and I asked my president if he would step in and take over for me while we, for, you know, indefinitely until we could do a proper CEO search. And it was kind of a crazy thing to do because, you know, my company is named after me and it's the only thing I had done in my entire adult career. And, and so to step down was, you know, pretty dramatic, but it was obviously the, for me, it was like the obvious and only thing that I could do. So obviously the right thing to do, because I felt that probably my lifestyle of running around the country and taking red eyes and drinking too much wine at cocktail hours and just kind of living this fast paced life was doing no favors to my health. And knowing that I'd had a stroke, you know, a long time ago, and actually before that I had another health condition as a child, I was like, you know, my body just is like not keeping up with this lifestyle and I've got to make a change and actually put my body first. And I can't be the CEO that my company needs. My company needs a CEO who's willing to have that lifestyle. And that just couldn't be me anymore. And that I needed to like, just take a message from the universe and say, it's time to make some changes and really like go inward and really focus on your body and healing it and 
getting through this major challenge. Give it everything you've got. So uh, one of the more compelling eating crow moments I've, I've heard anyone realize, which is, you know, your, your lifestyle um, has to change overnight. And when you, so two questions, number one, what's the first thing you changed in your life after you, you stepped down? What was the next big thing you did to kind of adjust your lifestyle? The first thing that I did is I stopped drinking before that I was probably drinking, you know, I was putting a bottle of wine with my husband, you know, five, four, five, six days a week. Mm-hmm. And that felt like, you know, not a dangerous thing or anything that was like out of the normal range. Sure. Um, but I also was felt that that really could be cut back quite a bit. And it had been sort of a goal to be able to cut back on my dependency on like drinking glass of wine to relax at the end of the day. And so that was the first thing that I did. It was really, it was challenging and it took a long time to um, make that feel, I mean, to fully break my like emotional connection to alcohol. I knew that how important that was. The next thing that I did that it wasn't immediate. I mean, I really had to get through my cancer treatment, which was started with surgery and then chemo. Once I kind of finished through that, I guess the next thing I did was drink protein, have a lot of protein so that I could like deal with my surgery and help my body rebuild because surgery will just destroy your muscles. And I don't have a lot to begin with. And so I need to kind of get in front of that. And then during chemo, (laughs) I mean, I threw all caution to the wind and ate like pizza and ravioli, like whatever I wanted to kind of get through the chemo part of it. Cause I ate whatever my body wanted when I was done while I was doing that, I was read all this research on sort of what I should be eating. And I, I signed up with a functional doctor. That was the big thing I did as soon as I finished a functional doctor is a, they have a medical degree, but they focus really on maintaining health and understanding your hormones, your inflammation, your gut health, kind of all the things that the mainstream primary care folks don't really look at. And they're usually cash only and they don't take insurance. And there's many oftentimes like wait lists to get to see them. There's not a lot and they are unbelievably valuable to have in your life. If you can get access to it and prioritize it, like working with my functional doctor, like really gave me the roadmap of what I needed to do nutritionally and from a lifestyle perspective to fully heal from what I went through. Right. When you think about the fact that you mentioned access to a functional doctor and the fact that it's not covered by insurance, do you think there's a gap in our healthcare system associated with that? Because, you know, doctors typically, they treat a condition or a wound or a one-time incident. They're not geared towards long-term or self-care. That's right. Which is kind of what we should all be doing to prevent us from having to engage yes. in the healthcare system. So how did you find your first functional doctor? What did you do? Did you research it? Did you get in the yellow pages, Google it? Or how'd you find them? A friend told me about, about it. I had no awareness that this, this methodology existed. I was aware of naturopaths and I had seen mm-hmm. a naturopath a few years ago, but this is sort of a level above a naturopath. Yeah. Naturopaths are more about acupuncture mm-hmm. and you know, basic supplements, but they don't have the same credentials as a, a functional doctor. Yeah. A friend told me about one. She recommended her. So I got on the wait list and eventually got to see her. Her name is Dr. Harriet Hansel and she's based here in Durham. I think she's fantastic. And now I work with her. I'm like, this is how primary care should actually Amen. be. 
Amen. You know, but the problem is that we, as kind of consumer, as people, love getting a pill. We a pill for every ill. You know, that's what we've been trained to think that there's a just want to go home, like break open that bottle of pills, just take it and feel good the next day. And for that framework to work, I mean, that's the framework that we have. Like we've kind of fallen into this prison of pill for every ill because consumers want it and aren't willing to do it any other way. They're not willing to actually learn to cook. They're not willing to make time to do that. They're not willing to make, to start exercising five or six days a week as you're supposed to be doing. We're just prioritizing like our careers and, you know, we're just too busy with everything else. We just simply do not prioritize our health the way that we really need to be. And so the answer to that is just a pill. And on top of that, our pharma reinforces forces that, you know, we rightfully want an evidence-based approach to medicine. Like that makes perfect sense, but that means we had to have so much evidence. Someone has to pay for that evidence. And the only companies who can afford to pay it are those who have something to sell, which is the pill, which will be pharma. And so we're basically only funding stuff that will potentially lead to a pill. And so, and pills like do some great stuff, but like they pretty much just sit, fix like major sickness they don't actually help you stay healthy. So it's, I can see why we have the system we have, but I think that consumers need to be step up to the table and care about their health first and be willing to actually make changes, deal with the consequences it might have on their career or other things that they have previously prioritized and their, the amount of money they want to spend on their food, you know, and the amount of time they want to spend making good food, that's where to start there. And then maybe we will then get the policies and systems and support that we need to to partner with us on that. Yeah, it's unfortunate. I I, I ran a, a company in the space for 10 years and it was disheartening to find out that most people just don't care. I mean, I get it. Like, I get it. Like, I remember when I saw a naturopath a few years ago, I happened to keep a copy of the intake forms. I don't know why, but I, I just found it a few months ago. And I saw she asked me a question, you know, scale on one to 10 how much do you care about your health? And I said, eight out of 10. And then right below that, it said, how willing are you make, willing to make changes to your lifestyle? And I was like, oh, a two. I'm real busy right now. <laughs> you know? I'm like, sure. give me something easy. And I could just see it like from her eyes when she saw that, she was like, oh, this girl, she's not going to actually see lasting changes if this is the attitude. And that was the attitude that I had several years ago. So what's fascinating to me is you were a highly educated, motivated, performance-driven, curious person, right? That's, that's who you are. I mean, heck, you started a company out of curiosity. I want to find out what's in that data. So you're data-driven and society naturally prioritizes everything else above that, right? So, and here, I think part of the problem is America doesn't know a happy medium. And here's why. On LinkedIn, we praise everybody who's sold the company and been successful. Right. That's the that's the measure. You get on LinkedIn, you're you're held against very successful people. And my favorite thing about very successful people is on the way up, they talk about the grind and how hard it is. When they get to the top, they talk about no, it's just about being nice and it's not about the grind. Stop working so hard. Yeah. Which is hilarious. On Instagram or Facebook, people only show the best version of themselves. They want to show the doctor picture. So you assume that fitness or health is a fitness model or a supermodel. And people think that's unachievable. They think both of those spectrums is unachievable. Mm-hmm. When really it's this balance in the middle that most of us can achieve. But to your point, 
there are trade-offs. Yeah. Right. I mean, there are definite trade-offs. So you talked about, first of all, adjusting your work-life balance. And you were in a position, fortunately, to do that, which is great. A lot of people yeah. can't necessarily just quit their job. They get to grind through it. Number two, you quit drinking. By the way, a lot of people listening to this can relate to coming home from work. By the way, I'm one of them. I like coming home from work and I've got a you know decanter of whiskey behind me. I like to have a drink at night. Mm-hmm. My wife's not a big drinker, which is probably why the only reason we probably don't open a bottle of wine and drink it together because I would be the only one drinking it. It's part of a routine long day. And there's something about the smell of it sitting down, just the shifting your mindset into a different place. Yeah. Right. It's hard to get away from that. And then moving your body and changing what you put into it. Shopping thoughtfully. Tell us about how you started to shop and cook food. When I did the research, my first instinct, you know, being sort of a privileged person, my first instinct was always to outsource whatever I kind of needed. Sure. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hire a personal trainer. I'm going to hire for this and that. And I was like, I'm going to hire a chef, you know, to like cook for me, like while I'm going through treatment. And even called a couple to kind of like sort it out, you know, because that was my first instinct. And when I kind of started actually looking into it and thinking about the type of food that I really needed to eat, which was plant-based, super fresh, like hopefully like picked in the last like couple of days, not traveled very far. If I want to be fresh and full of like all of the new, the, the nutrients and still like partially alive and delicious, like actually really delicious. There's no one that could do that for me. I was like, Oh my God, the number one thing I can do for myself, you know, number one investment, like money investment or time investment I can make is to learn to cook. I was like, Brooks, you got to learn to cook. (laughs) This is just bottom line. You can't outsource this one thing because when I was going to into this, I could, I could not cook a single thing. I mean, I remember my low point is when I was microwaving eggs and they were exploding in the microwave. You know, I mean, I remember it caused like a meltdown when I was microwaving eggs. <laughs> I was microwaving bacon, you know. I mean, I come from a, some very dark places on the cooking front. And so I uh, I was like, okay, you got to like take this on, the steep, scary thing. And now that I have some time, I was like, that's the thing. You got to learn to cook. So I started, I mean, I could do like a, like a whole podcast series on like the journey of learning to cook because it was long and I learned a lot, but I took that on. And that's basically what I've been doing for the last three years is learning to be a good cook of good plant-based. And now I, and I eventually even learned to grow my own food. And so I actually have a, a, um, a vegetable garden right outside where I grow 30 vegetables in the spring and then another 30 kind of throughout the year. And that's been its own crazy journey that has deepened my connection with food now even more. Eating good food, if you want to taste good, you got to cook it yourself. You do. And when you grow it yourself, it's even more satisfying. Oh my. Yeah, it's amazing. Oh, like the salad you can make with your own butterhead lettuce that you grew yourself is like, like beyond delicious. It is. I grew up on a farm and, you know, picking raw vegetables and eating them in the field was Mm -hmm. just amazing. And you can't, I mean, even raw sweet corn, you think, Mm -hmm. Oh my God. Oh, fantastic. Mm -hmm. So, all right. So you you taught yourself to cook. Then you thought about, all right, uh, this whole exercise thing. Yeah. What was was that journey? like? Well, I saw that um, there is a 40% uh, risk in recurrence, uh, cancer recurrence for those who exercise like hardcore, you know, the first year after they finish treatment. 
So I was like 47%, you know, that was like the number where I was like, it reduces my risk by 47%. Like that's crazy. And I was like, I got to exercise a lot coming out of chemo, chemo destroys you. You're like a shell of your former self. I was, I'm not athletic really at all. I mean, I was, I've had a Peloton for a while and I think I was, you know, running. I mean, my height of my running was to do a a 10 minute mile. I mean, I've, I'm just not, I don't, I have like a really poor, you know, body lean muscle mass profile. So it is just who I am genetically, not athletic, but I remember I had this moment when, um, when I knew I had to exercise and pick up the pace, I've always wanted to be athletic. I've like always wanted to like, to run at the same pace as my peers and sort of belong in a sort of an mm-hmm. athletic world, at least be average. And I remember sitting at, out at some cafe, like halfway through my chemo feeling so weak, so, so like, so sad and kind of hopeless. I mean, I felt so bad. And I remember seeing, I was outside and someone jogged by and I was just looking at that person go by and so wistful, like thinking about one day being able to do that. And I had this vision at that point, watching her run by that I was like, I'm going to do a triathlon. I'm going to do a triathlon for the first time. It's going to be one of the short ones. (laughs) And I am going to cross that finish line. I was imagining like the blue ribbon and like crossing it. And it brought me to tears in that moment. I was like, when I, the moment I finish this chemo, I'm going to start training for a triathlon. I'm going to do that. And it's going to, I mean, I kind of like tear up a little bit, even thinking about it now, how powerful that was for me. And true to my like promise, I started, like I started jogging again, the moment I finished my chemo and I started swimming, I set, I've signed up for a, uh, a triathlon about a year later and I got a coach and I started training hardcore, like immediately. And, uh, it was, I bought it. And actually what I, I did during chemo to commit to it as I went and bought a, a bike rack for my, I never even got it out. I didn't get it out of the box, like until I finished chemo, but I've got it. It was like, I went to the bike shop and I was like perusing like a shopper and I've got the thing. And then I bought a Garmin watch, you know, like a really nice fancy triathlon one. Cause I'm like, I'm going to, you know, I just got to like be like athlete and get, get ready for this. And then I did it. And I wore that triathlon watch for like two or three years late for two or three years. And, um, it was, I'm very, very proud of what I accomplished and I did, I did it. Yeah. So I did it like we had the pandemic, the triathlon that I had um, signed up for ultimately was canceled, but my coach being a wonderful person, she ended up scheduling, basically designing a custom triathlon, like me and my whole family went and she got like the blue ribbon for me. And basically I did the, the miles with all my coaches and a couple of my friends and my family was there at the finish line. It was the night of before my one year anniversary of finishing my chemo and also on the day before my 40th birthday. Wow. That was a trifecta right there. Yeah. I'm a triathlete and I can relate. My favorite people to see during a race are someone there with that kind of mission. Mm-hmm. And it is an incredible way to train, right? Run, bike, swim is a really good thing for your body. The swim is a way to recover. The bike is no impact. The mm-hmm. run gives you just enough impact where your bones get what it needs out of it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really good discipline. And there are people of all levels at triathlons. Mm-hmm. Right? You see it. There are people who have never, ever, ever done one. Then you got the elites. So good for you to knock one of those things off your uh, bucket list. It's one of the, my greatest achievements. I mean, I think I kind of walked the run part. I mean, it was exhausting. And it was really about the training. I had to have a structured way to get in the exercise through that year when I felt, you know, like I would love to just to hang out and do nothing to have a structured goal was a way to kind of hack into my, myself and like get in the exercise I needed to do to feel like I was doing everything possible to make sure the cancer didn't come back that first year when it's your highest risk. You know, when you think about taking everything from I'll call zero to hundred miles an hour after the diagnosis, major job change, major food change, exercise change. Now it's three years later, you're chairman of your company. You've picked up a yoke and you've taken up colon cancer as your cause. Like you said, educating the younger population to engage. I think what, what I want to help our listeners understand is how have you stepped all those things back into something that's manageable, that's doable every day. So you wake up and think, I don't have to go to hundred miles an hour. I've just got to get these kind of things done. Because a lot of times, and I see all these, these courses where it's work out twice a day, starve yourself, eat peanuts. It's, it's extreme. I guess I kind of understand it if you want to do a reset, but when you're done with that 90 day challenge or that 60 day challenge, what now, right? How do you, how do you look at your day and and recognize what normal can be? So how do you approach that? Well, I can definitely overdo something if I get really focused. And I think a lot of ambitious people can do that. Sure. And I'm in a specific kind of case where I do have, I created so much time and space and I had the ability to do it. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I recognize that not everyone can just quit their job and, devote 100% to their health the way that I did. I kind of think about maybe it's more of a one thing at a time, you know, take on one challenge. Don't do it all at once. Just, I kind of think about my health, almost like a Rubik's cube Mm. where you have, you know, a totally jumbled up Rubik's cube and you can take one move every, maybe two or three months, one move. And then you make some adjustments, you like look back, you see if you're how you're doing, and then you come back, you make another move. And it sometimes it seems like you're getting close, sometimes it seems like you're undoing some work. And it just, but it might take like a few years to actually feel like you're gonna get to the your goal. It's just so it's not really about the goal, it's more about just doing the activities. One of the the systems that I made for myself, I really love that has been really effective. Um, I call it the five star system and it, it really is inspired by like the little gold stars that you would get as a little kid, you know, okay. you, you would get a big, uh, you know, board your parent would make for you for doing your, your chores. You yeah. know, basically I got a whiteboard with a, a calendar kind of template on it and I put it in my closet and then I created, I decided what are the activities that I care about right now? And just little activities like right now, what's on my board. Well, I put in my goals. My goals right now are vitality and savoring. Those are my high level goals. And then I have a weight target goal. And I think I have have a couple other goals, like, I don't know, some muscle mass kind of, and a couple other things, but those are my big goals. So they're, they're on there, but then I'm like, okay, what are the activities that I know are really supportive of those? And one is intermittent fasting. I'm like, do I fasting 15 hours? Another one is don't drink today. Another one is exercise, get a workout. Another one is I'm trying right now to break my addiction to the ceremonial cacao that I have picked up for the last couple of years. So I'm just 
trying to break it and not have to have it first thing in the day. So basically don't drink your cacao and then meditate is my fifth one. And then the last one is just weigh in. And so I put in the way in as that's only on there because if I weigh in in the morning, I immediately give myself a star. And so every time I do all these things, I give myself stars for all of them. And so I get a star out of the gate and I get basically get to feel good about myself. Like, and basically by weighing in, it helps me get kind of intentional about the day. And then like, I don't know if I meditate or I have my, you know, if I don't have, you know, if I don't still have my cacao or I have a glass of wine, like whatever, I'm not going to get all six of my stars, but I'll still get three or four. And at the end of the day, I guess count all the things I did right today. And the days I get all six, I'm like, that was a great day. And then I get to just, I don't know if it keeps me sort of focused on my, the activities that I know will make me feel really good. And those, you can change those activities. Like if I'm like, you know, at any time you can totally personalize them, whatever you want to work on, put it, give yourself a star for it. And then want to change, you change, you know, it's totally fine. And then what's, but it's focusing on the things you're doing right each day rather than wrong. And you just trust the more you do the activities, the more you will achieve your high level goals. It's actually pretty ingenious. When I'm recording a podcast, I always try to think of what the name's going to be. And the Rubik's Cube is going to be, I'm going to, wait, I'm going to weave that into the name. I love that analogy, Brooks. You got three of them in a row, but to get the next row, you've got to undo the three you just did and kind of figure out how to make that balance of a step back, but two steps forward. And eventually you come just make yourself the progress. And then you want to mix it all up again and try it over, right? You, want, you can't stop there, right? The Rubik's Cube, in a sense, is never really ever done. Right. Yeah, exactly. You probably will never get all of, all of the you know, the size, but if you get like four out of six, like that's great. And then I get sad when I see the video of the 10 year old kid solves it in like 38 seconds. Yeah. There's definitely a method, a method. Oh my goodness. I don't know how their brains work. Let's fast forward to, you know, you've kind of figured out how to adjust your life. You've got these, this five-star habit, this kind of a Rubik's cube approach to everything. These last three years, when you think about Brooks Bell, you know, you started this company that had a mission and a, and a plan. You've got Greg running and just a super guy and, and a great team. How has your approach to what Brooks does changed? And where do you see the company going in the next five years? What's Is the vision changed based on your own experiences? I mean, what are you bringing to the table there? As far as my role in, in Brooksville? Well, just the vision for Brooks. I mean, you know, when you see the company, how do you think it's going to evolve? And what do you, as the chairman, kind of, when you sit down with a team, you mm-hmm. say, hey, I've learned some things over the last three years. Yeah. But I'm I'm so proud of the team and just love how Greg has kind of taken over and how he's growing it. What we are doing, what we had kind of before I left, we started to focus on customer centricity. You know, we made a framework and it was difficult to get our clients to meet us where we were. Mm-hmm. And it just wasn't sticking to the degree that I really wanted it to be sticking. And so that was some unfinished work. And Greg has taken that customer centricity to like another level and has made tremendous like shifts in kind of the team. And uh, we've been able to get some really amazing talent from around the country. The pandemic really has opened up the, you know, before we really needed people to be local. And so now we can recruit from everywhere. And so we've just up-leveled the talent that we have access to. 
And now we can work with this sort of remote kind of model. And it's been fantastic for the quality of our work. And then we're focusing more on on insights rather than just output. And so insights is a lot harder to, I don't know, measure, or it's just a lot squishier of a concept than just like racking up wins, which is what we did for basically our first 15 years. And how do we like scale that? And how do we learn from our insights? How do we work? clients learn from our insights and that's now become core to their, their business strategy. And I'm just thrilled to see him pull that off because that's kind of was the vision that I wanted. And the other thing that's really great is I I think now the team, I just met her, I came back and um, presented uh, our history, our history to our, to everyone uh, a couple of weeks ago, which is something I do for new employees and realized that 60% of the team over, I hadn't met, you know, yet. So it's, it is a very different team, but they're like still like, they still represent our core values. You know, everyone who was there, they were all authentic. They were all just really great people. And I just love that we have maintained that kind of the culture that we have had for so long without me there. So I'm just so proud that we have, you know, that everyone who is there, that we have a culture that is durable and that's in alive. So um, the reason I asked the question is I, when you mentioned your way of thinking, when I talk with Greg and I talk with Dan and I talk with Kylie and some of the other leaders at Brooks Bell, the Rubik's Cube concepts popped out to me because you said you're looking at insights, right? And if you're sitting with a client, you know, Dan and Kylie mentioned that you guys have relationships with customers for four plus years, right? You've been around a long time. Oh yeah. In a sense, they've got to get comfortable with this Rubik's Cube, right? You're, you feel like you've got a path, you got three of the colors together, but you discover some insight that says, maybe we got to turn and rotate this direction. And it never stops, right? You're, you're just moving the Rubik's Cube down the line, but it's, it's always twisting and turning. Yeah. And it is, it is a little bit softer. It's harder to get people there, but you're making bigger impacts inside of organizations right. than just a data-driven project. That's right. And I think if you care only about data, it can send you down like some bad paths, you know, that are not customer centric at all, you know, that puts revenue in front of, you know, good customer experience. And we've seen that we've definitely see that in action. And so we have got to kind of neutralize that threat with insights. Mm -hmm. So when you um, kind of the last question, when you think about Greg and the rest of the leadership, leadership team at Brooks, you mentioned when you stepped down as CEO, you needed someone else could step up and do the drinking five nights a week and traveling red eyes and everything. Yeah. And when you sit down with Greg and the leadership team, what's that conversation like to make sure they don't end up in the same situation, right? How do you help them rethink their objectives and their goals and realign everything? I think the pandemic honestly has helped so much. And mm-hmm. Greg, I mean, you see him on LinkedIn, like he half the stuff he posts about are in work-life balance. Absolutely. So he runs a mile every day. And I see on his calendar, I don't know if he wants me to point this, like share this publicly, but he puts in every day, every workday, take a nap, like the middle of the day is his nap time. And so he's modeling like self-care to the whole company. And I think that is fantastic. I mean, now the fact that we can be more remote doesn't require that you get on the plane constantly. Right. And I think that's huge for us and how I think whether or not he like depends on a glass of wine to relax him, you know, is hope, you know, I know he's great. I mean, I don't know if he has that same kind of instinct as I did, but 
I think I think we're really trying to make things a lot more balanced for ourselves and for our team. Yeah, I noticed that um, in my conversations with Greg, the, the thought process here is because we don't have to get in an airplane, we don't have to drive into the office as much. It's not to get that time back for work. It's to get that back time to find some balance in your life and focus on your health and your family or whatever it might be, which is so beneficial. I hope everyone that has decided to start working from home turns that 20-minute commute each direction, 40 minutes into something that could benefit their health. I mean, it would change the world if we could just get those 40 minutes. Yeah. I agree. It is a huge gift. And I mean, a huge gift to us to help kind of break our addiction to growth um, for like financial growth or just for to capitalism, basically, you know, for like going above and beyond for our bosses and just associating your self-worth with your financial success or your the number of people that you manage or, you know, your title. I mean, all that stuff I think is so empty. And but we've been in this culture that really prizes it. I remember some like having this conceptual theoretical conversation about selling companies. And there was the person I was talking to kind of was really judging me on the idea that like, okay, with selling comes for something that's not what it might be really worth, you know? And I was like, you know, A, it's none of your business, like mm-hmm. what I do. You sh- and like, whatever I is the, whatever the right choice is really the right choice for me, not, you know, but I was like, that's just amazing that we care so much about these measurable things about what success really means. And I think with a pandemic, if we can kind of start to realize that it really is about our family, about our friends, finding love in our life, slowing down, like, you know, focusing on your, your vitality and savoring and like learning new things, that would be so good for our, our culture and for our society. Yeah. And in closing, I think one of the first messages you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast was take an active role in your health at a younger age, uh, both seek out Experts. If you don't know what a functional doctor is, look it up, find out, see if it's mm-hmm. something that's of interest to you, or go see a trainer or a nutritionist, or and make sure you, to your point, push with your family doctor or your physician. If you something's not right, make sure they look into it. Yeah, I just actually conducted a little bit of a research study and asking about various self care habits through the generations, and one of the things that I saw is that people's exercise drops off a cliff, like going from their forties to fifties and sixties, like older people just don't work out anymore for some reason. And across all income levels and insurance levels, just like we stop moving our bodies, the older we get. And that's also of course, when all of our uh, health problems start to pick up. That's when we lose all of our muscle mass syndrome, you know, like our stuff happens. 100%. What people forget is, you know, without going too far back, but the human body was designed to basically work all day and eat very little, right? When we were hunter gatherers, you know, when you hunted, you went and hunted for sometimes days and then you brought back whatever you could eat. And while you were gone, people were gathering. So they were up and moving all day long Uh and they maybe ate once or twice during the day. And it wasn't a lot. And it was typically just what you're growing in your backyard, right? Organic fruits, vegetables, and then some lean proteins. So you know, our whole society shifted the opposite direction. We sit yeah. 99% of the day and we eat a lot. Yeah. A lot and, of sugar, like too yeah. much sugar. Like, yeah. And what we eat is not good for us. Yeah. So it's hard, by the way, that is, that's that evolution took a long time. It really started to take place 
in the seventies and eighties, right? Uh That's when, that's when diabetes and obesity went, I mean, it was a hockey stick. People don't, if you look back at it, it was not an issue. I saw like a a documentary and that took place in the seventies had all these scenes of just people, you know, thirties and forties in the seventies walking around. They were so thin. Absolutely. Like everyone was so thin. I could not believe it. Yeah. You ate basically three meals a day because there were snacks were not readily available. Processed foods were not a big thing then, both in the packaging and the fact that you could process and preserve things. Your TV was 15 inches you know, in diameter. There just wasn't a lot to do it in that. You just did stuff. Yeah. And uh, it is, you know, I, I fought this battle for 10 years and it's hard to get people to change what's comfortable. Yeah. So I hope that uh, people that have heard this program recognize, and I hope that people don't have to have a life-changing event like you did, yeah. right? They can listen to this and go, maybe I'll talk to my doctor tomorrow. Or, you know, Betty's been asking me to go to the gym, whether I should go. And I always tell people, you never regret. I've never heard anyone regret a healthy meal. Mm-hmm. Like when you've had a good organic meal, you go, that tasted amazing. And I feel good afterwards. Yeah. No one ever regrets it. No one ever regrets a workout. Right. You get done with work. I'm going to go, I wish I would have done that. Totally. The cookbook that I um, learned to cook with was called Healthier Together by mm-hmm. Liz Moody. That's a great. great cookbook. And it's designed for cooking as a couple. You know, roommate or your spouse can cook something together. It's great to do it together. And then the food that's in that is like all of it's amazing. So amazing. And it's all healthy. You know, it's yeah. nourishing. And I'm, I, cooked almost everything in that cookbook over the first year I was learning to cook. And um, by sticking to one cookbook, it allowed my pantry to start to match sort of what the cookbook author's pantry looked like. And before I knew it, I didn't need to to shop for new stuff. Like I already had the stuff I needed to cook whatever it was and it made it so much easier. So uh, that's a recommendation for learning to cook. Yeah. And and another couple of tips for people that are trying to shift into that lifestyle, Brooks, is um, make dinner time an event. Right. Yeah. Put, put some music on that's soothing after a day, whether it's a glass of wine or a glass of club soda, something right where you talk with each other. For those that have kids, my kids did their homework at the kitchen table while we were doing that. And, and they learned to cook. They learned to appreciate decent music. And mm-hmm. and then the smells, right? Those smells come back that trigger memories as they get older. Yeah. Uh, really an important thing. In- you got like an LED, like little, there's all these cool new lamps out there that are like, you know, LED kind of. Um, you can plug them in and charge them rechargeable that make it a candle lit kind of vibe. Perfect. We always have that on hand. I just like turn that thing on, like put it in the middle of the table. Sure. It's awesome. It's like, I can't eat without my little like candle lit vibe <laughs> at night now. Well, and the other thing is I think people think it's expensive to eat healthy. It's not any more expensive. It's a little more choosy because mm-hmm. your food tends to last only a couple of days. Right. So you have to engage in that practice, but it doesn't have to be more expensive. It just needs more thoughtful. I was thinking that there was this, like, I was thinking about this concept, like, what are they? It was like the four P's of like cooking. It was like prep and mm, I don't think I'm going to remember on this spot because I haven't fully baked it, but it was basically trying to break down what are, how do you basically really learn to cook? And getting like a meal plan together is super important. Just sitting down to think about what are you going to eat? Yeah. And that's being like really great. Like it's like amazing. Go through your cookbooks and just like, like fantasizing about these amazing things. And, and you'll go and go to the supermarket all the time, but like it ends up being like pretty wonderful part of your life. 
Yeah, it does. You, you, you learn to embrace food rather than have it as an enemy. Yeah, yeah. Well, Brooks, it's been a pleasure. Uh, it's, it was great meeting you and getting you on the show. I hope to check back in with you in a year or two and see where things stand and find out where all your initiatives are. And um, I'll put how to reach you and, and the causes that you're supporting in the show notes so people can find that as well. Thank you. And I, want, I guess my last thought is like message I just want to leave with everyone with is to get a colonoscopy like the moment you turn 45 or the moment you can qualify for it. Do not delay. It should be like you're on your 45th birthday. Colonoscopy is how you prevent colon cancer. It's one of the only procedures that actually proactively prevents you from getting cancer like in the next decade. Yeah. So every other cancer you can prevent with lifestyle. This is the one you can prevent with a procedure. Sure. And the reason is because colonoscopy will, will find out if you have a polyp, Polyps are the cause of colon cancer and polyps are really common. People yeah. in their forties today, about 37% of them have a precancerous polyp by like their mid forties. So mm-hmm. that's like one in three of us have a polyp. These are like very common. So that's why you want to get in there, find out if you have a polyp, get the thing removed um, while you're under. It's, mm-hmm. all, it's also the only procedure that actually like diagnoses and like fixes you while there you're you asleep before yeah. you even wake up. So you wake up polyp free. Yeah. And it's amazing. You don't need to then think about this for, you know, a few more years. So that, I mean, and colonoscopies are like a great fast, a great cleanse and a great nap. Uh, so by the way, very true. Pleasant. yeah, a, it is a fast, it's a cleanse and it's a nap and you wake up, you're like, well, that was pretty simple. Yeah. Simple. I feel light. I feel, mm-hmm. you know, I feel empty. Yeah. I mean, you just, it's, it's, it's much more positive than people realize, but I just beg you to not delay it. Don't worry about it. Don't fear it. It is a really, it's a really a wonderful thing to do. You know, it can save your life down the road. You will only feel good about yourself when you wake up after colonoscopy. I had my last one a couple of years ago. Uh, absolutely easy thing to do. Woke up, they found one little polyp, removed it and said, you're good for five years. Come back. We'll take care of you. But yeah, exactly right. They give you the, the test. They find out what's going on. They remove anything that doesn't look good and you wake up and you're like, I can't believe I made that a big deal. Yeah. It's not, not a big deal. And then you could have an amazing meal afterwards. Like yes. you're so hungry and then you could go off and like pretty much treat yourself, like <laughs> whatever you want. I did. Uh, yeah. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. It's so pleasant. And whatever you eat afterwards is going to taste amazing. Yeah. Well, Brooks, thanks again. Great message for all those listening. Um, best of luck and congratulations on the continued success of Brooks Bell. Thanks, Peter. All right. Appreciate it. Thanks for checking out Eating Crow. Like and subscribe so you never miss a video.